She's a police officer at a major United States Police Department. She suffered devastating injuries and a vicious assault and now faces a very uncertain future. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. In the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, we are joined by special guests talking about their experiences, their realities of investigating crimes, plus those who have experienced horrendous trauma, police, first responders, military, and victims of crime share their stories. Hi, I'm John J. Wiley. In addition to being a broadcaster, I'm also a retired police sergeant. Be sure to check out our website, letradio.com and also like us on Facebook. Search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Remember when news was free? Be sure to check out the Newsbreak app. It's free and be sure to follow the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and podcast on the Newsbreak app. Newsbreak is your number one local news app for current events, free live news for you and your community. Download the Newsbreak app today for free and be sure to follow the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and podcast on the Newsbreak app. That's the free Newsbreak app. Be sure to look for and follow the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and podcast. Calling us from the Western United States, we have Bree Kaplan on the phone. Bree is a member of the Los Angeles Police Department. Bree, thanks so much for joining us on Law Enforcement. Very much appreciated. Yes, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's uh, so good to have you on. Bree is going to talk about her experience in law enforcement, and she's going to talk about things that a lot of people don't know about because the news media doesn't tell them. And that's the whole purpose of the Law Enforcement Today show is give perspective of law enforcement officers, supporters, spouses, survivors, and victims of crime. By the way, if you're one of those you want to be a guest on the show, just go to our website, letradioshow.com, contact us section, and, and contact me that way. Briefly, let us know, how long were you on the job? I was on patrol for about five years, up to my injury. Okay, and before we go into the details of your injury, what's your situation like now? My situation now is a blessed one. I live up in the mountains, and I get to be a stay-at-home mom, and I'm still fighting with the department. <laughs> this is a, the Los Angeles Police Department. This is not some little small agency. We hear reports of people in Texas and Oklahoma, Arkansas, smaller agencies where officers get severely injured and wind up being retired with no pension. You're from the Los Angeles Police Department, one of the major departments in the United States. Yep, yep, that's right. And when you say you're fighting with them, are you in danger of being fired? Yes, I am. I have been on a list for injury on duty slash return to work section after I was deemed completely and permanently disabled. So um, we've basically been waiting for the city to buy out my medical case. And I've just been notified that the city is broke. They're unable to buy out my medical case. And in order to go through medical retirement, I'm basically being pushed to say to move back to Los Angeles so that I can be monitored so they can make sure I'm actually as injured as the doctors say I am on paper. Yeah, because so many doctors just want to lie, right? Right. <laughs> you, you've got documentation from multiple doctors, you've got lawyers involved. This is a process that there's no big surprise to anybody. And it's all documented, how you're injured and your injuries and where you're at now. And you're permanently disabled. Is that correct? That is correct. My disability rating was too high. And um, I was told that I would be unable to return to work and unable to work as a police officer ever again. But recently, apparently, they've made policy changes 
and now I'm in danger of um, either being fired or forced to quit for being medically stagnant. And this is all for a line of duty injury, line of duty incident. Yes, sir. And we're not talking about moving a file cabinet. We're talking about a violent, vicious assault, which we'll go into details about a little bit later on. A lot of people, when I tell them stories like yours and stories like so many guests we've had on Law Enforcement Today show and what I went through, and they think that when an officer is injured and no longer able to do their job as a result of a line of duty incident, especially a violent assault, that they're automatically taken care of and they have nothing to worry about. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. Yeah, that's right. So in the academy, it was actually a point to tell all the recruits that you are now into a blue family. Whatever happens on the job, you're going to be taken care of. We're a big family. We watch out for each other um, during work, after work, whatever happens. And unfortunately, I found out that was not the case. We were told this very same thing. And I've had so many guests on the show. We're always told you will be taken care of. And what we found out, what I found out, and so many guests have talked about, is that that really applies to those officers who are killed in the line of duty, that their families are well taken care of financially. I say, well, that, that's a matter of perspective. We have state insurance, local insurance, federal insurance, and usually the surviving spouse gets 100% of their pay. But when you're injured in the line of duty, it's you, you, every man for himself, for lack of better words. It really is. And it's not the departments, and I don't want to hang every department out there. I don't want people to get the wrong idea that it's the departments. Usually what happens is, and I'll clean it up as nicely as I can, without going into a lot of details, when you are severely injured in the line of duty and the doctors and the lawyers decide you can no longer do your job, then it goes into the hands of the county government, the city government, state government. Then it's the accountants and bean counters that get involved and it's a totally different situation. Yes. So yeah, it's, it's been you, awful. That's where you're at. We, we, you have no idea what your status is, and you could be fired any day. That is correct. I'm literally waiting for the phone call or the email. Well, thank goodness you lawyers that uh, will help you. One of the things that a lot of people, I'm sure, are asking is a major department like L.A., there are collective bargaining agreements, usually from groups like FOP or PBA or whatever initials people want to use, mm-hmm. and that's what is guided by. What happened with your case? Um, I ended up getting my own attorney outside of the department, and he was really good to me for the first part of it. He actually ended up getting me a temporary settlement just in the exact amount that we needed to pay off our mortgage that we were behind on so we didn't lose our house. With the potential of a medical buyout down the road, which would be a substantial settlement, and then I could just cut ties with the department and be medically retired, for lack of better words, and not go through the pension department. Because if I went through the pension department for medical retirement, then I would have to pay that settlement back, and it would be a two-year case with a 50-50 chance of even getting it. So... We've been waiting for the department to buy out my medical case. We'll come back. We're going to talk more about that. Uh, this is the Law Enforcement Show. Our guest, Bree Kaplan from L.A. Police Department, uh, retired or not retired yet, but permanently injured in line of duty due to a vicious assault. We're going to talk more about the details of that when we return. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. 
You can find us on Facebook. Just search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and be sure to click like. Return conversation with Bree Kaplan, member of the Los Angeles Peace Department for now. And we'll explain more in a few moments. Before we went to break, you talked about being severely injured in line of duty, permanently disabled, unable to continue your job as a police officer. You got some sort of a temporary stopgap settlement so you wouldn't lose your house, you and your family. But as so often is the case, there are some legal technicalities preventing you from going through the retirement process with the pension board, correct? Correct. Yes. And so we were waiting for the city to essentially not be broke and to be able to settle my case with a medical buyout. And so we've been waiting on that, and I've been following up with my attorney. So I followed up with my attorney um, about a month ago to see where we were at with it after the department called me and said they were were ready to either fire me or force me to quit. And my attorney essentially said, there's nothing else I can do for you. The city doesn't look like they're going to be in a financial position to pay out your medical case. Good luck. (laughs) Why is it that Los Angeles can't afford to retire one police officer? You know, that's a good question that I've been asking myself for a while. <laughs> and really, is there any answer that makes sense? No. All the answers that I'm getting, if any, are circled back to the department can't afford it. You're, you have options, but your options kind of suck at this point. And um, good luck finding an attorney that would go forward with it. We can speculate till the day is done about all the different reasons why Los Angeles says they're broke. I don't want to do that because, quite honestly, and not that I care that much about the city government, but it's not fair, and I hate when people do this, when they speculate and they have no facts, but it makes no sense at all to me that with the financial wherewithal of Southern California and California and Los Angeles, that they can't afford to retire you when you were permanently disabled as a result of a vicious, violent attack, correct? Yes. Take us to that day. What happened? Okay, so it was about, um, it was actually in January of 2012, and I was working Watch 3, which is an all-night watch. We had about seven two-man units for 65 square miles. So it was a typical night. We were short on cars, and it was a busy night. So my partner and I had a full call stack, and we were waiting um, to clear all the calls in our stack, which was uh, 415 man at a bar, which is uh, disturbing the peace. So we were going to go knock that one out before heading to the other ones. When we got there, there was a security detail outside the bar that advised us that the suspect was gone, he had left, and that... They just wanted us to check a man laying on a bus bench outside the bar because they thought that maybe he was suffering from a possible drug overdose. One of the bar patrons saw him shoot up some sort of drug, and they wanted to make sure that he was okay. So my partner and I checked, and um, at first he wasn't responsive, but he was breathing. So we were about to call an ambulance, and then all of a sudden he stood up, And he said, you're going to die tonight. So my partner and I went to cuff him until we could figure out what the situation was and where we were going to go from there. He immediately resisted. 
Um, well, well yeah. that kind of is going with the territory. But when he said, you're going to die tonight, I'm sure, like me, you've heard those sort of things so many times in your career that it becomes almost like water off the back of a duck. When yes. he said it, did did it alarm you at all? Um, Not necessarily, because a threat to my life was almost a nightly occurrence. So um, I, I kind of figured that maybe he was on some sort of drug or he was drunk and um, he was looking for a fight or he didn't want help or whatever the case was. And so we went over uh, to cuff him and I put him in an arm lock and um, he attempted to get out of my arm lock leaning forward and with full force he threw his head back. He headbutt me with the back of his head and I literally flew from the sidewalk into the street. At the time, I didn't feel, but I landed on my gun hand, and it caused a severe sprain. And um, I heard a crack, and my nose was gushing blood. But I thought, he probably broke my nose, but I'm not really sure. I didn't realize how severe I had actually been injured. And the force with which he hit me was shocking. And I had been in fights with um, suspects on PCP in the past. And it immediately occurred to me, it could potentially be a PCP suspect. And by the way, I've been through battles with people on PCP in in Baltimore. It was called Angel Dust, or a big thing was marijuana laced with PCP, and they called that boat. And you could literally, it felt like you were wrestling the Tasmanian devil. And it was almost impossible to find it, to get them to subdue without using a lot of force. Yeah, yeah. And even with a lot of force, I don't know if it was your case, they didn't respond to it. Like, you punched someone, mm-hmm. or, or the mace we were issued was worthless on that stuff. But if you punch someone on PCP, they would shake it off. But the only thing I know of in my career, in my experience, that works 100% of the time is choking them out to lose consciousness. And almost every mm-hmm. department frowns on that. Yes. And I'm sure yep. your department especially had oh, uh, incidents it's- a long time ago about choking and guillotine chokes and rear naked chokes and jujitsu moves and all that stuff. Yeah, and I had previously taken MMA before starting the department, but at the time, um, choking somebody out was equivalent to deadly force. A- exactly. But do you know of anything else that, that worked? Um, no. Aside from deadly force, nothing in my experience has worked. Right. And you can't go shooting people that are just because they're high and want to fight you. Uh, right. And, but you're kind of stuck in limbo. These things happen so fast, by the way. Uh-huh. It's a lot quicker than you and I talking about it. You go from cuffing a guy, trying to cuff a guy, and you're severely injured in the middle of the street, and you're like, what is happening? It's weird because it goes so fast, yet it's almost like slow motion. I recall vividly, and when I tell people this who've never been in law enforcement, maybe never been in combat in the military or or firefighters that when faced with a critical incident, it's a term they like to use so much nowadays, life and death situation, a severe battle, gunshots, whatever it might be, that literally two things happened to me. Time slowed down in my mind Mm -hmm. to a tremendous amount, and people tell me the same things happened to them. Another one that happened almost all the time was auditory exclusion where I couldn't hear other stuff that well because my entire focus was on the threat at hand. We're talking with Bree Kaplan 
from the Los Angeles Police Department. This is the Law Enforcement Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. What is the Newsbreak app, and why should you follow the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and Podcast on the Newsbreak app? Newsbreak is your number one local news app for current events, free live news for you and your community. Download the Newsbreak app today for free, and be sure to follow the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and Podcast on the Newsbreak app. Back to our conversation with Bree Kaplan. Bree is... I'm saying for now, a member of the Los Angeles Police Department, that could change quickly. She could be fired. We'll explain more in detail later on. Uh, we're talking about the incident where you were attacked in a, in a violent attack with a, a guy who was high under the influence, possibly a PCP. When we, before we went to break, Bree, you talked about he headbutted you severely. You were in the street. You thought you broke your nose. You had some hand injury, and things started to slow down for you. Take us back to that. Okay, so I um, I got back up out of the street. I kind of wiped away the blood from my face. I put out a backup, and I ran back into the fight between him and my partner. So my partner took leg control, and I took upper body control. And about a minute into the fight, I heard dispatch asked if we needed help. Um, my partner up to this point had also put out a backup call, um, but the suspect threw her rover and anything else that she had taken out of her duty belt at that point. So I pressed my rover from inside my duty belt and initiated a third call for help. And at this point, the suspect had lost lots of blood, um, some teeth, and he's still fighting as if it was nothing. I remember looking under my right arm as I reached for my duty weapon in an attempt to end it through my holster because at this point he grabbed for my gun and we were in a fight for gun retention. And that's always an issue. Someone asked me a long time ago, and I know it's before your time, Bree. Mm-hmm. They said, remember carrying slapjacks? I said, yes, I do. I remember carrying slapjacks, but I stopped carrying it because it was something else I had to potentially defend against in a fight. The yes. suspect got a hold of it, and, mm-hmm. and they almost always went for your, your service weapon. Yes, yep. And thankfully, I had a triple retention gun holster, so that was nice. But, um, yeah, I realized there was about 100 bar patrons and I remember specifically thinking there was a substantially heavy security guard, and they were circled around watching. And I remember thinking, if only that substantial heavy security guard could come and help in some sort of way just until backup could get there. But we were fighting so hard, no matter what I did or what position I tried to get in, I couldn't get a clear shot without shooting my partner or all the people around watching. So after five long minutes, backup finally arrived, and they saw that I was covered in blood, and they pulled me off to the side while the others took over fight control. They teased him numerous times with zero results, and finally over six officers got him into cuffs. Wow. So So uh, you're injured, you're bleeding. They finally got the guy under control. They took six officers to control the, the suspect. At that point, did you realize that you're you're badly injured, or you just weren't quite sure? You just knew you're banged up. Um, I knew I was banged up. Um, I thought maybe I had a broken nose because there was a lot of blood. I didn't. It was hard to tell the difference between my blood, his blood, and so the ambulance finally arrived, and um, I told them that I think I had a broken nose. They looked me over and they said, "There's nothing we can really do for a broken nose." 
and they asked me if I wanted a ride to the ER, and I said, well, if there's nothing you can do, then I'll just catch a ride to the ER um, after we clear the scene. And so my sergeant eventually took my partner and I to the trauma center, and they um, took x-rays of my hand and said that I had a severe sprain, and I'd probably be unable to grip my duty weapon for a few weeks. And then the trauma doctor said I most likely had a broken nose and to go home and rest and basically suck it up. So they didn't take any CT scans, MRIs, or X-rays of my face or my head. And um, we ended up going back to the station to finish up reports and paperwork. And then I just went home with a migraine and intense body pain. And that really wasn't the end of it. That was the beginning. That was the beginning. So you get home. It's supposed to be, as far as you know, a broken nose and a sprained wrist, sprained hand. And all those things are very easy to recover from. I mm-hmm. say that from my point of view. But yep. I, I thought I had a sprained wrist before, and it turned out I needed three surgeries, a couple steel plates, and that was the end of my career. Yeah. So, so what did you find out? Things obviously didn't start getting better, did they? They did not. I recovered for about two to three weeks until I could grip my gun and the workers' comp doctors cleared me for full duty. But my headaches and my migraines just got worse. And as soon as I went back to patrol, it became extremely clear that something was very wrong. I started getting vertical, throwing up on the way to and between calls. My days off I spent on the bathroom floor throwing up from the pain and the migraines. My husband was a paramedic at the time. And he stepped in and said, we need to contact a neurologist and find out what's really going on. So we found a world-renowned neurologist in L.A. who agreed to take my case and finally got an MRI and a CT scan and found out that I had a subdural hematoma, um, which is a brain bleed, a severe concussion, traumatic brain injury, and the brain bleed clotted itself. Um, Thank God, otherwise... They said I would have been dead in a couple days. They also found multiple facial fractures. Both my orbital bones around my eyes were broken, my cheekbones on both sides, and a split up my skull from my nose to the top of my head, as well as my C-spine, which was compressed severely. Five of seven of my C-spine vertebrae are bulged five to seven millimeters or more. And it is the type of injuries that when you read in the newspaper, and this is something I, I will always be upset about, or you hear in the news, they'll say the officer was injured, the injury's not life-threatening, and the good news is they'll survive, they'll be okay. Yep. And that's not the truth. That, that wasn't the truth in your situation, was it? It was not. It was not. What part of this scenario is okay? Um, none of it. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 know, I, I appreciate your, your sarcasm as well. It, it's not okay. And I, I want to get through the news media. It is not okay. It's not okay to assault our law enforcement officers. It's, they're not going to be okay afterwards. And the ones who can return to their career oftentimes have lifelong injuries. And if they may not encounter them right away, they will certainly encounter them later in life. Yeah. So yeah. you're sitting there. you got all these things going on. Mm-hmm. The brain bleed, the, the fractures around the face. That's some heavy-duty stuff. But one of the things I never, to be honest with you, Bree, I never thought of in law enforcement was traumatic brain injury until the last year and a half or so. I always equated that with combat veterans and explosions and things of that nature. When you say traumatic brain injury, what are some of the symptoms of that? 
Um, I, I had trouble finding my words. I had trouble remembering things. I had constant vertigo. I was constantly sick. The migraines were unbearable, and they ended up diagnosing me with post-traumatic concussive syndrome, and um, I became a case study for the head of neurology in L.A. They eventually tried to put me on psych meds, not for psych reasons, but to relieve the vascular pressure in my brain, hoping that that would kind of calm down the migraines and the traumatic brain injury. How is your traumatic brain injury symptoms now? They're a little bit better, um, or I should say a lot better, because I've learned to function with, I have a headache every day. I still have chronic migraines. I have occasional vertigo. Sometimes I have trouble finding my words and remembering certain specifics or time frames. But considering where I was shortly after the incident and since having some surgeries, it's gotten a lot better. We are talking with Bree Kaplan. This is a Law Enforcement Show. Don't go anywhere. You don't want to miss the rest of the conversation. We'll be right back. If you want to be a guest on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, simply contact us. It couldn't be easier. You can send us a message on Facebook. Look for and like the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show page or email j at letradio.com. That's jay at letradio.com. This is Law Enforcement Today's show, joined by Bree Kaplan. Bree, just to, to recap, is a member of Los Angeles Police Department, major agency in the United States. I was on the job for five years, was hurt in a violent, vicious assault, has lifelong career-ending injuries, and basically is in a situation where your your future is very uncertain. Is that an underestimate? Um, no, it's not. That's correct. So you could literally be fired by the time... This radio show interview is over. That is correct. Or the other option they give you is quit. Yeah, they're pushing me hard to quit, and that's pretty much where I stand. Obviously, I can't go back to L.A. and figure out a way to go back and work behind the desk. I mean, it's not a possibility anymore at this point. Part of the thing, I think, is back to our earlier conversation, we were always told if something happens to you, we got your back. You're part of the family. We'll take care of you. And what that really means is if you're killed in line of duty, your family will be taken care of. If you're severely injured and you get career-ending injuries, you're pretty much on your own. And many departments, they have what they call an allotment of how many swarm personnel they have to have on the street, and they have to meet minimum qualifications, physical qualifications, handgun qualifications, all that sort of stuff. And when someone's injured, there's only a certain amount of desk jobs available even if they made one available i'd have to wonder whether i'd want to spend any more time with an agency who treated me this way yeah that's right yep so even if i were able to go back i mean it would be a huge fight just to figure out the details on how i'd be able to go back if at all based on the paperwork stating that i'm permanently disabled and so at this point, there's two options. Either I'm forced to quit or they're going to fire me for being medically stagnant. And you made a decision that you weren't going to quit. That is true. All right. I always say this. Make them fire you. <laughs> make them fire you. At least where you have some sort of legal recourse. 
I'm not a lawyer. I don't want to give out what even people might construe as legal advice, but I'm glad you're taking the course you are. I firmly believe if you're doing your job and you get hurt and it's career ending, they should take care of you and they shouldn't be forced to have to do that. When I say they, the city, I mean. I agree. But they're told that Los Angeles is broke. Yes. And you and I don't want to speculate as why. Um, I mean, I have my personal speculations, but I mean, that's my personal. Opinion. Well, I hear all the time. They got plenty, <laughs> they got plenty of money for taking care of illegal immigrants. Right. <laughs> they have plenty of money for taking care of people on work release from prison and all these other social programs that they have. And I'm not saying those are bad, mind you, but they don't have money to take care of people who are hurt trying to serve the city. Yes. Makes no sense at all to me. If you ask me, our priorities are way off base. We have homeless veterans begging for food in the street, and yet we're taking care of people who don't even live here. I agree. It's outrageous. It does, it, I don't mean just the immigration thing. We're sending billions of dollars overseas in foreign aid when we got so many people here who need help. It just defies logic. I do want to get back to the conversation about you and get off my soapbox. Uh, so thanks for allowing me to rant just a little bit. What's it taken to get to where you're at today? You say... You have headaches every day. You obviously have had to learn how to find, and it's an overused phrase, your new normal. What would you say life is like today? Um, I mean, I like to look at the bright side of things. So I think I am extremely blessed to be where I am at today. I think everything happens for a reason, and what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And um, Then I should be able lot. to bench press Buicks if that's the case. Yeah, <laughs> And I mean, it takes, it's taken a lot to get to where I am today. I've been through facial reconstruction surgery and um, lots of therapy and, um, yeah. How much surgery have you had to go through after this incident? Um, well, after the um, psych meds actually screwed me up so bad that I stopped caring about life. I got extremely depressed. I couldn't get out of bed. I stopped driving. It was absolutely awful. Um, I remember sitting on my kitchen floor just crying about what future do I have. And my husband sat down and gave me a pep talk and said, this isn't you. You're stronger than this. We're going to get through it. So the next day I called and I stopped um, the psych meds cold turkey. And we found a facial reconstruction surgeon. And he pulled his old partner um, out of retirement for my surgery, and a couple hours surgery turned into six and a half. And they ended up basically reconstructing and rebuilding my entire face. And um, how, how old are you going through this? Um, so I was about 27, maybe. And you're sitting there, and I, I can't use, I don't want to sugarcoat it. You're sitting there with all these horrific injuries, this horrible state of mind, depressed, were you thinking of ending all this at that point? Um, I, I knew that I wanted it all to be over. I kind of just wanted to get my own life back on track and not deal with all of the drama with the department, and I just wanted to be better. I can't say that I have ever thought about actually following through with ending it, because I know that I'm stronger than that. But it got to the point where I was so depressed, I completely cut myself off from the outside world. And, um, I mean, it was awful. 
one of the things I'm sure you're taught just like we were taught, just like I was taught, everybody I know in law enforcement is taught this. You know, you find yourself in a really bad situation and I'm referring to like you trying to arrest this guy and you're about all, for your life. You cannot give up. You got to stay in the fight. I'm sure you, that was ingrained in you. Yes, absolutely. It was ingrained in me since I was a small child. I'm glad, so started before this. So th- that same mentality has got to be part of what's enabling you to, to fight your way through this. Yep. I knew I wanted to be a cop for a reason, and I knew the consequences that came with it. And I told myself from the very beginning, even before I went to law enforcement school, that I was in it. I was in it for the end. I was in it for the long haul. And that I, I would do whatever it would take to get through it. When you look back, what was it about police work that, that attracted you, that, that you decided this is a calling for you? When I was about eight years old, my biological father got arrested um, for multiple things. And there was a female police officer that helped me through it. And at that point, I knew that I wanted to be that officer for <clears throat> all the kids in the future, as well as saving as many lives as I possibly could. So contrary to what a lot of people believe. It's not about running and gunning and locking people up. No, although the chase and the locking people up was a lot of fun, too. But <laughs> yeah. Well, there's an old saying I got from a guest a long time ago, Ralph Friedman, and he said, the, and I'm paraphrasing, the uh, risk was worth the rush. It was quite the adrenaline rush. But as I look back on my career, I enjoyed the time with children more, I think, than locking up bad guys, although getting a really bad guy off the street was an incredible rush. Yes, saving anybody from, you know, potential pain or heartache or crime was was really what was behind it all. It was worth it. Well, Bree, I want to thank you so very much for your service in the Los Angeles Police Department. I wish you well, you and your family. I know you've come a long way. I know you got a lot further to go, and, and I wish you nothing but the best in your battles with the city and the city government. Thanks so much for thank being a guest on the Law Enforcement Show. It's very much appreciated. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank our guests for coming on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. The Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show is a nationally syndicated weekly radio show broadcast on numerous AM and FM radio stations across the country. We're always adding more affiliate stations. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, which is always free, please do me a favor and tell a friend or two or three. I'll be back in just a few days with another episode of the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and Podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.